So I'm not saying that they were like, great, I'm so glad that there was a World War II. I'm not saying that. But you know, I love to study the battles. I love to study the, the fights, what caused us even to get into World War II. But here's the tragedy that I discovered is that in this particular war, Hitler was not only insane, he claimed to be religious. Some say he was a Druid, but that he took his occultism and he went to extremes with it. And he had such strange outlandish ideas that he truly believed that Jews were not fully human. And consequently, they were the real cause for them losing World War I. Consequently, he decided that he was going to have all of the Jews rounded up, put in concentration camps, and they were going to be punished. And many of them died. Actually, six million Jews died during the Holocaust. And I remember reading some of these statistics and these figures, and I was just overwhelmed. I just could not believe that such a man actually lived, and he was like so totally okay with six million Jews dying. Then I, several years later, I got a different perspective from a movie that was put out entitled The Hiding Place. The Hiding Place is about this extermination of these six million Jews. And Corrie ten Boom, with her family, were hiding Jews, and consequently, they were arrested because they were discovered, and they themselves were put into jail. Over the years that she was in that concentration camp, her family died. And to my knowledge, wasn't she the only survivor of her family? Yes. Her dad was a watchmaker, had a store, and so they were hiding Jews, and they were caught hiding Jews, and so they were put in this concentration camp. And I remember watching this movie and as, a, as a young boy, just crying and realizing, wow, I, I mean, I'd learned about the Holocaust, but this was so personal. You actually climbed into Corey Ten Boom's story. And then several years later, I read of the account where she was actually introduced to one of the guards at that concentration camp. And God spoke to her and said, I want you to go over and shake his hand and forgive him. And she had a battle with God. Wait, God, you, you need to realize that he was one of those hands laid upon my sister and one of the reasons why she died. And you want me to, for, you want me to shake his hand? Okay, God, I'll try to find a way to forgive him, but I'm not going to shake his hand. And on and on the battle went. And as you followed this story, as she tells it, God so dealt with her heart. And this process, and that's what it was she describes, a process of forgiveness releasing him and saying your debt is paid and she walked up to him and she said I don't know who I don't know if you you remember me but I was in that concentration camp and I remember my family dying and I want you to know that I've forgiven you 
And what an amazing story of her ability to forgive. A very personal story. So on the one hand, as a young man, I'm growing up and I'm learning all the facts of the World War II and the Holocaust. And yet I hear another perspective completely in line, but so personal. You see, we have the story of Jesus. Now, I, I love the chosen in many respects. There's some places in which I take issue with them, but regardless, wonderful stories, especially this past season, episode eight. Oh my goodness, we just watched it. We all cried. The, the, the challenge, though, is that in our day, many people in America, they, they know about the stories of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called the synoptic gospels, meaning a similar view. And they know the stories because these stories generally focus on the facts. They generally focus on this is what happened and this is how Jesus responded. They're generally short and they then move on to another story. And whether you're aware of it or not, part of the beauty of the synoptic gospels is that chronology, that is, one story happening chronologically after the other, is not what drives their story, but rather they're thematically driven. And for this reason, some of the stories are shifted around, generally going from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end. And in our day, we look at something like this, and we might think, well, this is, this, this, they're just wrong. Well, see, you have a wrong perspective that the Jew had back then about recording history. We're so driven on the facts, and not that any of the facts of the Gospels, amongst them anyways, you compare them are wrong, they just show a different perspective, and they lay them out thematically. And so you have, the, in Mark, excuse me, in, Matthew, in, in Mark, you have the, a picture of the opposition, excuse me, in Luke, the picture of the opposition against Jesus mounting until you get to Luke 6 where he chooses his disciples, the 12, and then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and the focus of the Sermon on the Mount is love your enemies. And he just talked about the opposition, even wanting to kill Jesus. And you see this theme being woven through the gospel, story after story. But then you come to John, and John is so clearly written from a very different perspective. Not wrong, completely coinciding with the facts. Sometimes you really have to think about how they fit together, but they do. But he, John comes from a more personal and more personable perspective. Actually, there's only four stories in the Gospel of John before Passion Week. Passion Week is the last week of Jesus' life. Four stories that overlap between the Gospel of John and the Synoptics. They would be things like the, excuse me, the baptism of John or the baptism of Jesus. And in that story of John, there's a dialogue that happens between the Jews and John the Baptist. And then even John doesn't record the actual baptism of Jesus. He only talks about it like a reference. Even saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is such a powerful theme throughout the Gospel of John. 
And then you come to the cleansing of the temple, and the synoptics have a cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry during the Passion Week, but John is aware that there was a cleansing that Jesus did at the very beginning of his ministry, and they're very different, and it's, the focus is a dialogue that Jesus has with the Jews. And here's what you discover, that John, when there's overlap, four stories, he tells it from a different perspective. And even the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, Peter's not even in that story of walking on the water. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he didn't feel cheated on that. As a matter of fact, my personal understanding is that Peter was probably dead by that time when, when the gospel was written. Regardless... The whole story then segues into Jesus saying, you know what, you are seeking me because I met a physical need, but I need to tell you about a spiritual need that only I can meet. Why? Because I'm the bread of life. And this is what John does. And so he tells this story from a different angle, a different perspective. He includes the dialogue, and he then shows Jesus interacting questions, answers, interacting with the Jews or his disciples, teaching. The Gospel of John focuses so much more on teaching. Even the stories that overlap in the Passion Week, John still focuses more on the dialogue. That takes place. Even Pilate interacting with Jesus and interacting with the people. And so there's, there's just, there's so much difference there and with John focusing more on the teaching of Jesus, the dialogue, what he taught rather than the actual things that he did. But don't get me wrong, John includes numerous stories that the Gospels do not. Let me tell you this, it's as if John knew the synoptic gospels, and he writes his gospel in view of that. And many suggest, and even people like Papias and Irenaeus who wrote in the second century, say that John wrote his gospel towards the end of his lifetime, which would have been around 90 to 95 AD. And that he, his disciples had actually come to him and they asked him, can you please write your, your perspective on Jesus' life? And so finally he did. And so it's going to come from a different perspective. John chose not to write his gospel and include Jesus' parables like the synoptics did. That was something that was very unusual for Jesus. None of the other authors in the New Testament wrote parables. But that's, that was so much of how Jesus taught. John chooses not to talk about Jesus' parables. In essence, it was as if, man, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they did such a superb job with the parables. I'm going to approach it from a different perspective. And so you have John. Now he is focusing on metaphors and spiritual truths. And I'm about to read John chapter 1, verses, verses 1 through 18, and we're only going to look at the first several verses tonight, but we're going to see some metaphors here. We're going to see some spiritual truths while we're reading this. Now, I'm going to come back and I'm going to point some of these out in the Gospel of John, but let me read this to you right now. Are you there? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or has not overcome it. We're actually going to look at that verse a little later. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. Now, this is John the Baptist, not John the Evangelist who's writing this, okay? He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and, through the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And we're going to look at that phrase in a couple of weeks. Not tonight. There's so much packed in that. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Even though Jesus was born about six months after John the Baptist. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Father, I ask that as we look into your word tonight, speak and reveal truth to us. And God, I ask that this is truth that would not just change us, Lord, but we would be so excited about it. We would want to tell our friends, we would want to tell those around us about this Jesus that we have encountered that's changed our lives and given us life in his name. We ask this, Father, do it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus uses metaphors and spiritual truths, and we see a number of them just in this passage here. And I want to be careful because some of these are metaphors and some of them are not. I'm going to just call them spiritual truths or spiritual concepts. Throughout the gospel, for example, you'll read things like Jesus is the light of the world. Now, he's not literally a light, though I guess in all of his glory he could be. But that's not the point, because the true light has come into the world and gives light to every man, and that doesn't mean that every person, Jesus kind of shined a little flashlight on them. We're going to need to talk about that, and we're going to do that tonight, but Jesus is a light. What does that mean? How is he light? See, that's a metaphor. He's the living water. Jesus is not literal water, but he is living and he refreshes like water would so that if you drink of him, you'll never thirst again. And the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well would say, oh my goodness, wouldn't that be cool if I never had to come to this well again? Give me of this living water. See, she doesn't quite understand this metaphor. Jesus later says that he's the living bread or the bread of life. That if you actually eat of this bread, and he says, that is, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, 
you will live forever. That freaked some people out. And at that point, it says many of his disciples turned away from him because this was a hard saying. They didn't understand it. Some people you're going to be sharing the gospel with and and they go to church and they've been growing up in in church and they're going to hear this gospel, the true gospel, and they're going to say, hang on a second, this really sounds divisive. Guess what? Jesus came to divide. They are so right. Jesus came as a light to dispel the darkness. We're going to have to come to that in just a moment. Jesus is called the gate He's not a literal gate with rusty hinges, but he is a gate. He's the only way to the Father. He's the good shepherd. Now, he's not literally a shepherd, but he is spiritually a shepherd. So this one kind of, it might be a metaphor or it might just be a spiritual truth depending. Generally, a shepherd tends literal sheep. So I would say a metaphor. But he's a good shepherd and he tends to us. John 10, very significant We're going to look at that sometime from now. Jesus says that he has food that they don't know of. You know, if you have a disease called pica, you have a plate of dirt under your bed, and you kind of, it's like a food, and you hide it away, right? My daughter Juliana would do that, not with dirt, but she would do it with, like she would sneak candy, and she would hide it. And then we would catch her eating it. Um, But Jesus is not talking about any of that. He is talking metaphorically. He says, the food that I have, you don't know about. My food is to do the will of my Father. Food, doing the will of my Father. Wow. And it forced people to really think about who is Jesus. And what we discover is that throughout this Gospel of John, John gives us these metaphors rather than parables to give us little snapshots of who Jesus really is. As I say, many people in American churches, they're familiar with the synoptic Jesus. I don't mean that critically in any way, but they understand, yeah, there's a story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, do I really believe it? Mm, They probably believe it the way William Barclay believed it, a very well-known mid-20th century theologian, pastor, radio personality who was a liberal, talked conservative, but he was a liberal. And he talked about how Jesus fed the 5,000. And really, what Jesus had to do is the people there, the 5,000. And we just watched this story on the, on the Chosen. It was interesting. And that Jesus, or rather the people, were being really selfish. And so in order to teach them this art of giving and loving your neighbor, he had a little boy donate five loaves and two fishes. And he says, well, I've got five loaves and two fishes But is this enough to feed everybody? And that made people feel so guilty. They brought, those who brought extra to eat, pulled it out and shared it with their neighbors. And somehow this was the point. And and so people, there's something inside of them that wants to erase the miracle, like William Barclay, and just leave the principle which really isn't even the principle in the, in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It is Jesus' ability through his disciples feeding 5,000 men. And there's probably women and children, some would suggest 10 to, 10 to 15,000. He fed all of them. Wow. 
people are aware of the stories of Jesus. But when we start looking at the Gospel of John, many of the churches in America do not know this Jesus. Because the metaphors unveil a Jesus who is the author of life itself. He is the only one that we can look to so you can be born again. That would be another spiritual truth, or born of God, or born of the Spirit. We're going to get to those in, in a few weeks and kind of unwrap them. But this Gospel of John is profound. Honestly, you can read through it and gain the simple truths throughout the gospel and walk away with such amazing truth. Or you can take your time, seriously time. The more time I spend in the gospel of John, the more I realize how deep it is. It is very philosophical, very theological, and it paints a picture of Jesus as someone who is all-powerful. He is the Messiah. He is that living bread. What does that mean? And the more we understand who this Jesus is, the more we understand why he came and why I need so desperately to be rescued. And so this is the picture of Jesus that John gives us. He's the life. He's the resurrection. Think about that. He is Jesus, the Word. We're going to need to look at that one today. The theme of John is found in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I'm not pulling a rabbit out of the hat. I, I, I'm not sure of any theologian who wouldn't agree with this. John 20, 30 to 31, Jesus did many other miraculous, this is right after his resurrection, by the way, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, that is, the stories and all the teachings, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This sermon series, I'm entitling it The Abundant Life. It's taken from chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came to bring the abundant life. Our problem in America is understanding what that abundant life is. Much of the gospel in America is preached. Do you have a problem? Jesus will fix your problem. Just come to Jesus. Now, can I just ask you, can Jesus fix your problems? Church, he absolutely can. Many came to Jesus for the miracle's sake. But Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's more than the guy that can heal you. He's more than the one that can provide your needs. And he's more than the one that can really fix your messed up life. That's not the abundant life that he is talking about, though. He is talking about life because, see, people who are not Christians can experience that kind of life. They, husbands can learn not to yell at their wives and so that there's more peace in the home. But something that they can't have is this relationship with God, the author of life, and they themselves experience that life. This life 
And throughout the Gospel of John, you find it around every corner. It's, it's in there everywhere throughout his gospel. Life, life, life. It is not financial prosperity. It is not happiness. What might lead to some of this, this isn't why we come to Jesus. He isn't our little Jesus genie. You rub the lamp three times, okay? You, you get your three spiritual wishes or, or prayers answered. And many Americans, this is Christianity to them. But the Gospel of John paints a very different picture about why we need Jesus. He is not our Jesus genie. No, don't get me wrong. Jesus can answer your prayers. Jesus can do miracles far greater than what you're even asking him today. He can do all of that. But Jesus didn't come to, he didn't come to bring that type of life, though that can happen, because even the world can experience financial prosperity, church. They can't experience this abundant life. It is that life that flows from Jesus as a result of an intimate relationship with him and connects us with God, our creator. It is not the westernized gospel. Come to Jesus. He has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't doubt for a second that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life, but right now it's just that Many people come to Jesus, and now they have these expectations. Okay, gee, okay, here I am. You said if I had problems, come to Jesus, and he's going to fix them. So I have this problem in my marriage, and I have this problem in my finances, and my child is sick, and he has cerebral palsy, and it's so hard for him and us caring for him. I'm coming to you, Jesus, and I'm expecting you to take care of all of this. And what if that doesn't happen? Westernized or Western Christians give up on God because they believe he's given up on them. See, Jesus steps into our problems to shoulder our problems because he is the source of life. And that life carries us through the problems. Many times he delivers us from the problems, but I'm going to tell you this, usually he carries us through those problems. He doesn't leave us alone. He's right there, and he is the answer to those problems, not that he's going to remove them. Praise God, many times he does. But the gospel is not come to Jesus so he can fix your problems. Come to Jesus and you'll find love and joy and peace. Will you find these? Yes, but how well does this gospel preach in persecuted na uh, nations in which Christians are persecuted? The first century church, John was writing to a church that was under heavy persecution, more than likely during the Domitian Empire or Domitian reign. There was so much persecution. The story is told that John himself continued so fanatically to preach Jesus that the emperor said, I'm done with this. Throw him into a boiling vat of oil. And the story is told that they did, and he refused to die. He was sovereignly protected, and that the only way now to kill this guy was to exile him to Patmos. And in the 90s, that's what happened. He eventually was released, and he died in Ephesus. He was the only one that did not die from being martyred. You see, the Western gospel doesn't preach too well in those countries. The true gospel 
John 8, 31 to 34, tells me that sinners are slaves to sin and in need of abiding in the truth to be set free. And just a few verses before that, verse 24, he says, I told you that if you do not believe that I am, and we're going to need to come there one day and, wrap, and really wrap our minds around that. I told you that if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And of course, John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Perish how? In their sin." separated from God, separated from all that is life in God, that God originally intended for us, gone. In Jesus, we have it. It says they would not perish, but have everlasting life. See, this is the picture that John paints for us about the true gospel. Now, I, I want us to begin, I want us to look at this chapter here. It says in the very beginning, in the beginning, not in the beginning of his gospel, though it is in the beginning of his gospel. He's referring to John, excuse me, Genesis 1.1. In that beginning, in the beginning of everything that is physical and natural. In that beginning, the word was there. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. It doesn't say, and the word was a God. And I realize that that's very common in the New World Translation, which is what the Jehovah's, our Jehovah's Witness friends use. And I call them friends because my hope is one day by being their friend and sharing Jesus with them, they'll be saved. But they don't believe that Jesus is I am. And they will die in their sins. The word was God. In the Greek, whenever you have a linking verb like is, both the subject and the predicate, the word, the, the noun that comes before it and the noun that follows it is in what's called the nominative case. And there's only one way to know which is the subject. Is it, and God was the word, or is it, and the word was God? There's only one way in the Greek, and that is that the subject will have the definite article, the. And that's what you find here. Actually, the predicate noun, God, is found first. Then the verb, ain, and then halagos, the word. How do you know which is the subject? Logos has the definite article. And so it's actually grammatically improper to translate it, and the word was a God. That's just not proper. And the word was God. God does not have a definite article for a very good reason. Jesus was God. He was the Logos. He was the Word. What a strange concept of Jesus being the Word. Now, on the one hand, within Greek mythology or Greek philosophy even, the word was the rationale, it was the mind, it was intellect and thought, and that was the supreme God. And all of these lesser gods, these city-state gods, ruled over them and they would fight with one another, but the Logos was considered to be the highest God for many. But I believe that John is looking beyond that even. He's not, he's not trying to say that Jesus is that God and there's a lot of lesser gods under him, no. 
See, Jesus is the Word. The Word can either be a spoken word or a written word. There's only one way, church, that you know what I'm thinking right now, and it's because I'm speaking those words. There's only one way for you to understand what's in my mind that you can't see, and that's because I am speaking words that I hope perfectly reflect my mind. God is like the mind. You can't see God. And Jesus is the word, written or spoken. And that's how we know God the Father. And throughout John, even in John 14, he says, Philip, why are you asking me? Show me the Father. I've told you, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's the word. It's the spoken or written word. That's the perfect representation of the person's thoughts. Jesus is the perfect representation in every way, in essence and in attributes. What he said, what he did, perfectly representing God. But that word became flesh. Wow, the incarnation. Now, he wants us to understand a little bit more about this word. The word, Jesus himself, it says here, he created all things. That is, all things through him were created. It goes on to say that in him was life. And church, I mentioned to you that by believing you may have life in his name. This life is every type of life. He is the one through whom God the Father created all things. In, G in Genesis chapter 2, it says the Lord God, that is not Adonai Elohim, but Yahweh, covenantal name of God. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is Jesus. He's Yahweh Elohim. He is the Lord God. Through him, rather in him is life, and through him everything then has life that has life. It is all because of Jesus. He's not just the author of life. He is life. He is power. Everything that exists and lives and has their being is from Jesus himself. He is that more than an author. He is the source of it all. That's Jesus. And that source breathed life into Adam and he became a living being. Not just a physical life, but a spiritual life. He then goes on to talk about the light of life. So is Jesus like that little flashlight you shine in the dark? And it's a metaphor. So this light is truth. 
He is the light of life. He is the true light that came into the world. How is he going to show you or share with you the truth about God? How is he going to show us what the Father looks like and what would the Father do in this situation or this? He did it. He said it. That's how. He is the light of life. He is the truth about life. Now, I did say this was a little bit philosophical. We could go very deep with this, honestly. I'm not going to do that. Two things about this light of life, this truth of life. Number one, it shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Here's what you discover. As you go through the Gospel of John, you find opposition everywhere. As a matter of fact, in, in, in John 7, 43, it says, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Constantly, Jesus would speak, some would believe, and some would become antagonistic. Those who were antagonistic, that's the darkness. It is evil, it's sin, and that sin blinds the eyes of the world. They don't just not understand, there is something about the darkness that opposes the light. In John chapter 3, Jesus says that those who walk in darkness, they don't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. See, that light is truth. It declares what is life and what is death. What is righteousness that you walk in? What is the sin and therefore the death that you could walk in? And those who are caught up in the darkness, those who are in slavery to sin, there is something that repels them inside. There is something that repels them from the light, from the truth. They hate it. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, there is a spiritual dynamic going on in this conversation that causes them to want to oppose what you are saying. And we're going to discover in John 6 that it is only when God steps in and begins to draw that sinner by his grace to him that they come to Jesus. God has to step in. This is why we pray for the lost. It's not just a matter of, you know, well, I'll just preach the gospel. They'll get it. No, they won't. Because they're in darkness and their eyes are blinded and they love the darkness. And God must step in. He must do something. And within Calvinism and Arminianism, there's a debate, well, what is that grace? We're going to get into it just a little bit in a, in a few weeks, but not too deeply. But I do want you to realize that apart from God's grace, there's no way that you could have ever come to Christ. And so this light that shines in the darkness. It says the darkness has not understood it, and the Greek is not, doesn't just translate understand. It can also translate does not overcome it. And I'm going to suggest that John purposely uses this word to indicate both of these. They don't understand it, and they want to fight it, but they can't overcome it. 
I'm going to tell you when you're preaching the gospel, when you're, when you're holding out the true light of life, Jesus himself, as John paints it, not the Jesus that America, many Americans say they know, but they truly don't, but he who is truly the one who steps into their life and upends them and truly brings life into their lives, that Jesus people oppose. That Jesus brings division. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring you peace. I came to bring a sword. What? See, in American Christianity, we often forget about that one. As, as, the, God, as, as the messages are preached Sunday mornings, many of their churches, they don't want to go there. Jesus didn't come to bring a sword. Yes, he did. Because he's divisive. Church, Jesus is divisive. And my fear that we preach Jesus so that he's no longer divisive. Why? Because Jesus is the true light that's come into the world. And the darkness opposes him. And if the darkness is not opposing him, I'm wondering what light we're really shining. I don't want to be too pessimistic with that. But I just, you just need to realize when you're talking about Jesus and how he has rescued you from sin, something in the heart of man on the one hand wants that but hates it because of this opposition that darkness has with light. But it will not overcome it. It hasn't and it will not. Romans 1.19, excuse me, the second thing that the light does is that it shines on every person who's come into the world. He says you're the true light that gives light to every man. Not as opposed to woman. This is anthropos, so it's mankind. Man and woman. He was coming into the world. Jesus shares this light with everyone. With everyone. This light... Is the, is the true light that reveals life. Romans 1.19, it says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, and then in verse 20, it continues on, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... So we're going to look at creation, and he's going to tell us that we're going to see some invisible qualities about God. Here's what it says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature, his attributes. What is he like? What's his character like? Is he loving? Have been clearly seen. Clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. This is the light that shines on everyone. This is the light Everyone bears witness to. They look at creation and they see what, church? They see life. I don't care about the teachings of evolution. They can proclaim their idioms and their, rather their, their theories as long as they may, but no one has yet and no one ever will figure out how life can come from non-life. Can't happen. They've been wrestling at that one for decades. You want to jump into a hornet's nest? You, you listen in on a conversation between two atheist biologists and how they think life came about, and none of them do agree with one another. They all, and, and when they talk about other people's theories, they're brutal. Oh my goodness, you must be an idiot to believe this. They're a little bit more gracious than that, but they, they attack each other. 
None of them know how life can come from non-life. That's where we've got. How did all of this come about, church? It's here. Look around. It's here. Not in this building. Well, there's you. You're alive, I hope. Anyone not alive, raise your hand. Okay. Okay. I see some life stirring here. Good. If the person next to you is didn't raise their hand, nudge and make sure they're awake. But we're all living here. You are life. How did that happen? And evolution is clueless on this, along with many other aspects of how God brought mankind on the face of this earth. We have the light of God's creation and it's shining in this darkness and yet men love their darkness and they come up with ridiculous theories to explain it away. Why? Because if there is a God, they're accountable to him. He is shining light and he's saying, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. He is the true light. He's the only one that can bring real life. I'm not talking about financial prosperity. I'm talking about real life in connection with God because the Bible says my sin has killed me and I lay in a grave of sin. I am spiritually dead. I was born in sin. I was raised in my sin. I was a sinner and I hated the light. I hated the truth. I hated this life. It could only come from God through Jesus. I hated it. There was something, it resisted it. Jesus came that we might have that life that sets us free from sin and brings us into this relationship with God. And I'm going to just tell you that sometimes that relationship is really hard and we have doubts and questions. But that doesn't make it non-life. It is still life. And God gives us truth to help us walk through these difficulties, church. This is the abundant life. It is what connects us with God, Jesus Christ. I would be honest with you, I I feel that I'm happy. In many ways, I feel that I've been successful. Maybe in some others' eyes, perhaps not. I have experienced much financial freedom. But I'm not going to walk away and say, because of that, I have life. I have life for one reason. Because by God's grace, he drew me to his son, Jesus. And this broken man humbled himself by God's grace and cried out, God, rescue me, a sinner. And he rescued me. And he lifted me up out of the darkness to be able to experience his light, his freedom, his life. If my next door neighbor's house was on fire, I would rush over. If I couldn't put the fire out because it was too big, I would rush over. I would pound on the door. If there was no answer, I would rush into the house and I would say, guys, you have to get out of here. Come on, let's go but they continue to watch TV. I'm going to get a little bit more passionate. Guys, come on, come on. Let me help you. You have to, the house is on fire. Come on outside and let me show you it's on. No, it's not on fire. You're so silly. A neighbor hears the commotion and comes in and he says, Mike, what do you think you're doing? Can't you see? They're happy. 
They're watching TV. They're laughing. They're eating and drinking. They're having so much fun. What are you messing up their day for? You are such a jerk, Mike Curtis. Let me be a jerk then. But I want to tell them that their house is on fire. And if they don't leave right away, they will perish. I don't care how happy and how smiling they are at the time. They need to get out of there. There's only one rescue plan this world ever has had, and that is only Jesus. He is the true light that has come into this world. He shines that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through him. He is the one that if you trust in him, he will rescue you, and he promises he will give you the abundant life. That life that is found in him, that Yahweh God that created all of life to be able to have the humans, to have a relationship with him forever and ever and ever. Sin came to spoil it. Jesus came to rescue us from it. This is the good news. This is what Jesus was all about and why he came to shine this truth so that as the author and the source of all of life, that he would be that for every single person who believes in him. And I'm just going to say, if you have not experienced that life, my friend, today, don't let another minute go by without looking to him and crying out to him to rescue because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He will rescue you from your sin and give you this abundant, eternal life that he promises. Can you stand with me? Father, we, we have all been in the darkness. If we're not right now, that's where we used to be. We can all relate to this darkness. We have fed on it. We've lived in it. But by your grace, many of us have experienced that deliverance. I ask you, Father, that we would walk in that and that we would love to tell our neighbors how they can be rescued from this fire, how they can be rescued from their sin, from this darkness. John came to testify concerning that light. We can do no less. Jesus, shine through us. And I ask you, Father, even this week, By your grace, may we have the privilege of seeing one person trust in Jesus Christ and be rescued from sin and death and darkness and brought into your kingdom of light. This week, God, at least one. And Father, if there's any here who still have yet to truly trust in you, God, open their minds and open their hearts and draw them to Jesus, please, Father, that they would trust in you. Father, you're so good. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this for us. Continue to teach us through your word, but even above that, God, help us to live this out this week to let our light, the light of Jesus in us shine and to tell people about him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.